join me in 2 Timothy chapter 3. When a pastor comes to a passage of scripture that he's going to preach, he looks for what we call the wow factor. Sometimes we become so familiar with the scripture that we uh, overlook the wow and, and don't understand the force that's behind it. Uh, and we want to say things in a way that, uh, and, and some old things in a way that are unforgettable. Uh, we also want to say things that will move the people to action and that will cause them to feel what the author and the first readers of the text uh, felt when writing or when reading the text. I've got to say that with this text here in 2 Timothy 3, and we'll go to chapter 4, verse 5, this is not a difficulty. I remember uh, I had a study Bible given to me uh, in the summer of 1983 that I used uh, early in college. I let a friend borrow it, and that friend lost it. Uh, but uh, in, in the two years that I had it, I poured over this passage so much that I stained it with the oil from my fingers uh, from verse 1 all the way down to chapter 4, verse 5. And I, I think as we read the entire text this morning, you're, you're going to sense why that's maybe the case. You're going to feel like the Apostle Paul knows everything going on in the nation and the world, and he's writing about it here to a church. And it, it's impossible with this kind of text to hide and isolate ourselves from the world. It reminds me of Gordon McDonald telling of his son when they gave him a pet ferret. And the ferret's name was Bandit. With a name like Bandit, you can pretty well determine the behavior of the ferret. Something of a self-fulfilled prophecy, I think. But in any case, the ferret misbehaved and they were going to get rid of the ferret. He called the pet store and asked about how to dispose of the parrot. And he suggested, what I'll just do is take him to the New Hampshire wilderness where they live and just let it go. And the pet store owner was shocked. He said, you have to understand, Bandit was trained to live in a cage, not in the wilderness. We have got to be trained to live outside a cage. I don't know if there ever was a day when we could isolate ourselves from the world and live in a cage, but if there ever was, that day is gone. The aggressiveness and the ruthlessness of what we're going to read in this text is timely, is relevant, is current, and it's really not possible to hide from the world safely in a cage. And here the Apostle Paul talks to Timothy about stranger dangers than he's ever faced before and tells, them to handle, tells him to handle them with the Scripture. Beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, and unforgiving, slanders without self-control, brutal despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people turn away. 
For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janice and Jamborees, Pharaoh's magicians, resisted Moses, so these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapprove concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured. And out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you've learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, They will heap up for themselves teachers and will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. We are in a time of stranger dangers. The kind of dangers and perils and challenges we face to our faith and even life quite frankly, are stranger than they have ever been before. One preacher said that we can send a man to the moon, but we cannot take a walk in a local park. That was Vance Havner back in 1970, by the way. One social commentator said that sex oozes out of every pore of American life, and he wrote that in 1982. Over the last four and five decades, this accelerated pace at which we have Uh, come to reckless behavior and a reckless social order, even reckless family life and reckless marriages, reckless relationship, not to mention recklessness towards God, has not found any hindrance. There's not been even a hiccup in the progress towards it. Even our best days in our lifetime have been marked by challenges that we never, ever dreamed we would ever see before in our lives. The dangers we're facing today are stranger than they've ever been before. Have you ever said to yourself, I never thought I would see the day that? The culture is permeated with that kind of sentiment, if not those particular words. And the apostle says here that the way to handle these is not with less Bible, 
but with more Bible. And there are three verbs that arise out of the text that are going to help us with that. And the first verb is this, separate. The first word is to separate. Verses 1 through 9 describe that process where it is appropriate. Now, I'm nervous about talking about the biblical doctrine of separation because on one hand, you've got some that carry that so far that anyone that disagrees with them about religious things such as your clothing and translation of the Bible and your hair length and all, they separate from those and that's just downright silly. But then there are some that won't separate over anything at all. Well, what we need, ladies, and, and, and so the result is with those that won't separate, um, on one hand, one folk look rather strange. On the other hand, you can't tell the difference from the other group with the rest of the world. What does the Bible teach? Well, the text is really, really clear here if you look at it and if you look at others in the biblical doctrine of separation. Here in verses 1 through 4, you've got dangerous conduct. And there are a 15, uh, excuse me, 19 different descriptions of it. Uh, the, the first of them begin with their loves, and, and then you go with about five of them that begin with, uh, that deal with family, and then you've got the rest of them, the other seven of them, that deal with uh, relationships in verses one through four. There's dangerous conduct. Then, shockingly, there's even dangerous religion in verse five. Do not. Do not for a moment think that a world that is cascading and accelerating its way to foolishness and the judgment bar of God despises religion. Oh no, religion, religion does not decline in such days. Religion grows and excels in those days. Again, Vance Abner said, in these days the devil's not opposing churches, he's joining them. Verse 5. They have a form of godliness. So externally it looks very godly, but they deny the power thereof. They're capable of going through the motions without ever being touched by God. And there are people in churches that go through the motions constantly and have for years and even decades and wonder, why has the fire not fallen on me? Why am I not different? Why is there such a gap between the biblical profile of a Christian and my life? A form of godliness and denying the power of. And then it gets worse in verses 6 through 9 that we read. There's not only dangerous conduct and dangerous religion, there are dangerous ministries, verses 6 through 9, where they scope out vulnerable people. And in particular, Paul knew of some women in Ephesus that were burdened down with guilt and insecurity. And some of these religionists, even in the church, were taking advantage of them. Dangerous religion. Have you ever listened to commencement prayers at uh, colleges? Have you ever heard those? I've heard some recently. It's amazing what you'll hear in a commencement prayer. Uh, Dr. So-and-so will step up and pray and cry out to the great mystery. Oh, great mystery. And pray for some descript things, nondescript things. Never mention the name Jesus and then close the prayer with, In your many names, amen. Now, if we were to pray that kind of pray here, prayer here, you would understand what we mean, but in an environment like that, are we talking about the name Yahweh, the name Savior, the name Defender, or are we talking about the name God and Buddha and Allah? See, this, this uh, sneaky doublespeak that happens, dangerous ministries. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here, and look what he says in verse 5. From such people turn away. Now, wait a minute. You may be asking, didn't Jesus 
make himself known as the friend of sinners. Oh, absolutely. And we should too. We should too. Every one of us should have a list of people that worry us spiritually, that we're praying for, that we're making friends with, we're trying to influence for the gospel of Christ. Oh, absolutely. Well, what, what, what is Paul talking about here? He just told us to turn away from them. Oh, not necessarily. That's not it. There's a point and a line uh, beyond which we cannot cross, and that's what we find here in the text. Back in Matthew 14, 13, Jesus is near the palace of Herod when all sorts of immoral behavior is going on, and the result of it is the death and execution of his relative, John the Baptist. And the Bible says that he withdrew from that place. What's going on there? What's taking place is that there is a celebration of sin, and Jesus leaves. Now, for the most part, people in our churches and people in our world, people that are outside of Christ and outside our churches or inside the churches, won't celebrate sinfulness. They won't do that. They're too polite to do that. They've got moral sensibilities. They won't do that kind of thing. They won't celebrate sin uh, in front of, of anyone. They, they may at times do it in private, but when they're around you, they won't, they won't do that. That's not what I'm talking about. I think those folks are perfectly fine to uh, be friends with, to pray with, to encourage and influence for Jesus Christ. There's not a sin celebration that takes place there. But when the line is crossed and Isaiah 5.20 becomes operative in those relationships, that's where separation is necessary. Isaiah said, Woe to those who call darkness light and light darkness, sweet, sour, and sour, sweet. That's a sin celebration. Let me give you an example. Um, I, I, I appreciate the opportunity to attend ball games. And next time I go to the new Brave Stadium, there'll be some things there that I will certainly enjoy. There's some things at the Brave Stadium that I don't particularly like. I don't like the people there that have too much to drink or really anything to drink. Really don't. I, I, I don't particularly uh, like the fact that there are some that don't dress decently. Uh, there, there, there's too much skin. I, I, I don't like the fact that some are so hostile and so committed to their team that they berate other members of the team and they uh, are too intense about their commitment to the Atlanta Braves. But I don't mind going there because those things are not celebrated. Not at all. Those same factors are true in a strip club, though, and I'm not going to a strip club. Do you see the difference? Okay, one place, sin is celebrated. The other place, it is not. We separate ourselves from a sin celebration. Otherwise, we immerse ourselves in the lives of people in the church, outside the church, in order to influence them for Jesus Christ. In other words, there's no problem with the ship being in the ocean. It's when the ocean gets into the ship that we have the problem. Does that make sense? So Paul says, from such turn away. So that's the first verb, and that is to separate uh, in those rare circumstances where it's necessary, where sin is celebrated. But there's a second verb I want to give to you, verses 10 through 17, and that is to stay. That is to stay, verses 10 through 17. In fact, the summary verse there is verse number 14. But you must continue in the things which you've learned and been assured of. Now before that, Paul applauds Timothy for following his example in nine different areas. Paul learned his lesson well in his time, or excuse me, Timothy learned his lesson well in his time with Paul, and he implemented nine areas of Paul's example into his own, his doctrine, his practice, his suffering, and a number of other uh, important factors. 
And Paul applauds him, and Paul tells him in verse 14, continue with these things because every one of them is biblically based. In fact, all I've done to you is deliver to you the word of God with my lips and with my life, with my teaching and with my living. And I want you to continue in the biblical way that you have seen in my life because there are three things the scripture uh, that are true about the scripture. One happens to be this. The scripture promises greater clarity. Now look what he says in verses 14 and 15. You must continue in the things which you've learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. In other words, this great, magnificent God who is beyond total comprehension is the kind of God that makes Himself known through the Word to the extent that a child can understand Him. He promises a greater clarity. That can't be said in the world. There's a lot of confusion there. So the Scripture promises greater clarity. But second, it deserves greater trust. Verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Every bit of the Scripture that we have is God-breathed. And that's really the word that we translate here, inspiration. God actually breathed the Word. And He's talking here about the most disputed passages in all of history the Old Testament. Now, Jesus would certify the inspiration of the New Testament in John 14, 15, and 16. Uh, Peter, in fact, would call Paul's writing Scripture and would indicate that they were such. The apostles were uh, in the New Testament were authorized to pen the New Testament, and that is indeed what they did. And so Paul is saying here, the Scripture deserves greater trust. Now, I want you to imagine with me for a moment. Let's say you're building a house, and your builder orders... Uh, can't get all the materials from Georgia, and so he orders a door from Minnesota and orders windows from Arizona and orders roof materials from Michigan and ends up ordering all the framing from Washington State and everything that goes inside and everywhere else from other states. And when it all arrives, he assembles it together in a perfect home. You would think, my goodness, somebody, some mastermind was behind that who designed all of this. And ladies and gentlemen, that's what you have with the Bible. Uh, you, you've got the Bible written by 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years, and, and yet it is one story and does not contradict itself whenever you interpret it appropriately against its background, history, and culture. Oh, it's a remarkable thing. It deserves greater trust. And then it produces greater results. Look at the end of verse 16 and verse 17. It is profitable... For doctrine, in other words, what we're to know about God is found in the Scripture. For reproof, it reproves us. In other words, it points out where we're wrong. For correction, it tells us what right direction to go. And then instruction in righteousness, it always leads us in the right path so that we can be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. It produces greater results. The number one practice that predicts growth and development with the Christian happens to be Bible reading. And that's why we are committed to such, such things. So the scripture promises tremendous, tremendous change when people immerse themselves into the Word of God. And here's what Paul is saying. Timothy, you've seen biblical examples lived out in front of you. Mine and your mother and your grandmother back in chapter 1. You've seen that. I want you to stay with that. 
I want you to unite yourself intentionally and clearly, though you're the pastor of this church. You still need to unite yourself with those who are following biblical examples. Ladies and gentlemen, the way to navigate stranger dangers is to connect yourself with others who have navigated stranger dangers. That's the way to do it. That's why everyone needs a robust and growing commitment and involvement in a local church. Those who try to do it on their own are loners and they become losers. Listen to me. Listen, this may surprise you, but you've got to understand. Walking with Jesus by yourself has never been enough. It's not that there's something inadequate about Jesus. Oh, no. There's nothing inadequate about Jesus. It's just our hearts and souls are so depraved and so weak and so wounded by the fall and our own choices and sins that we can't make that enough. We have got to have biblical truth embodied in the lives of people with whom we walk. Walking with Jesus alone spiritually has never been enough. We need a local church. We need the people. We've got to walk with them. We've got to be involved in their lives. And so that's why evenings here at Beach Haven are so very, very important. That's why we're uh, strong and intense about urging our people to be involved in our discipleship ministries on Sunday nights. And Wednesday nights, we'll let you sign up for that after the service today and uh, later also in the, uh, in the month. We've got to be committed to that. We're starting new Sunday school classes as well. We're encouraging folks to take sermon notes and, and to do family devotions. In fact, if you don't know where to start with family devotions, use the sermon notes. There's usually an introduction, at least three or four points in the conclusion. That will take you from Monday until Friday or maybe Saturday. Uh, if you don't know what else to do, just cover what was covered on Sunday morning. I I'll tell you, by Tuesday, nobody remembers it, and so it'll be fresh and new, and they'll think you're wise as you're delivering all of this. But that's why it is so incredibly important to be tightly committed with a robust and growing, effective and meaningful walk with the local church. No one ever succeeds walking with Jesus Christ unless they do it in the context of a local church. And I've got to say, the strongest churches where from the pulpit and other places, they urge all their members to be there not only Sunday morning, but Sunday night and Wednesday night when the body gathers. Now, for all the perfect people out there, you don't have to come. But for the rest of us that are struggling, we are going to be here. Well, the, the third verb uh, summarizes verses 4 uh, excuse me, 1 through 5 of chapter 4, and that is the word speak. Chapter 4, verse 2, is the primary command here. And unfortunately, the English, in the English uh, translations, most of them, except for the Christian Standard Bible and the Holman Christian Standard, they translate uh, the word keruso in verse 2 as preach. And so they remove it from the people where it's usually found, and they put it with the preacher in the pulpit, and that's not appropriate. Uh, one that engaged, uh, in an out, uh, engaged in Caruso in the first century was a news broadcaster, someone that would announce something from the king, especially. Uh, news of a birth, news of the ascension to the throne, news of a victory, or some other uh, piece of uh, good news. Sometimes they would announce bad news as well, but this is primarily the mouthpiece of the king, the spokesperson for the king. And, and so it's not a clerical word in the pulpit, it's a layperson word in the pew and in the world. And so he says here, announce the word, 
broadcast the word. Now, I want you to see the accountability in speaking. Verse 1, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom, announce and broadcast the word. The, the point here is, Jesus is coming again and we're going to be held accountable for the degree to which we communicated the word and shared the word. We've got to answer to God one day how faithful we've been in getting the gospel of Christ to others. Mark McCloskey, in fact, said this, If I'm going to live faithfully before God, I must take the initiative to share as much of the gospel as quickly as possible, as clearly as possible, with as many as possible. There's a day coming when the Lord will evaluate our works, our time on this life, and our faithfulness to His commands. And if that day is going to be a happy day for the Christian, the Christian has got to announce and broadcast the good news of Christ. That's what the text is saying. So this is the accountability of it. But here's the urgency. Verses 2 through 4. Be ready in season and in out of season. In other words, be, be ready at the time of planting or a time when it's not ready to plant. Be ready when it's convenient and when it's inconvenient. And you've got to convince, rebuke, and exhort. You've got to cover the whole gamut of communication and speech. And you've got to be long-suffering. You've got to be patient with them. You've got to engage in a lot of teaching. And here's why in verse 3. The time's going to come when they'll not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires. Not the word, but according to their <coughs> own desires. Because they have itching ears. They, they're aflame for hearing something novel and new. And by the way, let me say, spiritual growth is not always when you learn something new. Sometimes it is a matter of remembering and doing something old. That's often what spiritual growth is. Well, this crowd doesn't appreciate that. They want something new, something novel, something creative. And so here's their response. They just won't sprinkle their lives with these kinds of teachers that meet their desires. They actually heap them up and it will seem like the whole world has gone after this. They will heap up for themselves teachers and will turn their ears away from the truth. Now, he's not talking about the secular world. He's talking about the church. And they'll be a turn aside to fables. Now here is the authenticity behind speaking the word. Timothy, if you're going to be authentic in doing it, you've got to be watchful in all things. Everything will come at you in order to get you to compromise. You'll have to endure afflictions. Now this is the worst sales job ever, if there ever has been one. Timothy, you're in the ministry and it's going to be tough. So come on, let's go. Do the work of an evangelist, which somebody's going to whine and complain about no matter what you do. And then fulfill your ministry. Give everything you can to your ministry. Earlier in 1 Timothy 4, he said, absorb yourself with these things. Occupy yourself with these things. Speak. In other words, you and I can make a difference by saying something true about Jesus. Whenever we speak something, we're telling the world this is important. Whenever we're silent, we're telling them it's trivial. It's not important to speak about. And have you ever, has it ever occurred to you how many unimportant things we talk about and how many important things we're silent about? Oh, my soul. Man, if you want a fist fight in a parking lot somewhere, debate what truck is better, Ford, Chevy, or Dodge. 
I've seen people get tore up about that. And a variety of other things. Uh, People will constantly announce exaggerated loyalty to a college football team or athletic program. I think doing that in an appropriate way is okay, but uh, it seems to me that eventually somebody has got to say something important about Jesus, something true about Him. And so whenever we're speaking, we're telling and implying what I'm saying is important to me. When we're silent, we're we're communicating this is trivial. Oh, I'll never forget when Jonathan was, um, he's 25 now, but whenever he was, he must have been three or four years old, we were sitting in a McDonald's in Raleigh, North Carolina with uh, Sherry Michelle and Jonathan, and Hannah Grace was just a baby, and Michelle's sister was with us. And Jonathan took a chicken McNugget and held it up and was about to draw it to his mouth when some little four-year-old came by and, like an expert, snatched it and kept running around the restaurant. (laughs) Now, I've seen a lot of things in ministry, but I'd never seen that before. And I thought, well, someone needs to get that boy, but I'm a a big fellow. I'm not chasing a four-year-old around a restaurant. I'll go tell the manager. Well, before I could get up and get to the counter and let the manager know, Michelle's sister, who isn't much taller than a four-year-old, goes after him. And here's what she does. (laughs) She says, oh, no, you don't. And she gets up and runs after that boy. Well, that boy takes off back to the back of the kitchen where the other employees are. That's how audacious that joker is. And she finds the manager, and I'm up at the counter now. I order Jonathan's more chicken McNuggets. But I'll never forget, I keep hearing Heather's voice through the years anytime I think about that. Oh, no, you don't. And she acted, and she did something. Hey, it was important to her that her nephew had chicken McNuggets. (laughs) Folks, whenever we speak, we're communicating something's important to us. Whenever we are silent, we're communicating that this is trivial. So let me ask you something. What, what do you do? Let's say you've got a friend and you've never shared the good news with the friend. What do you do? Well, let me suggest something. Let me give you three scenarios here that may help you. You've got a friend. You've never shared the good news. How about you say this? Um, let me ask you something. Um, are, are we friends enough that I can ask you a personal question? How about you start there? Well, it's going to be hard to say no to that. You probably are close enough to ask a personal question. Uh, You can ask, have you ever met Christ or how close do you think you are to giving your heart and life to Christ? You say, well, that's kind of awkward. Listen to me. It's always awkward. You'll never have a perfect opportunity. It's never smooth. It's never natural. I know the books say that. That's not true. But you have to bring it up because it's important to you. But, but then let, let's imagine this. Let's say that you have an acquaintance. You have an acquaintance, and uh, you want to get into the good news of uh, Christ. Well, what do you do? Well, we'll start by listening to their story. Say, tell me your story. I'd like to hear, hear about you. And sit there and listen patiently and take note of details. And when they're done, share your story and about how Jesus means something to you. And, and then let's say you've got someone that you know disagrees with you, and they state such. Well, instead of debating them and arguing with them, say this, tell me more about that. Tell me more of your process of thinking. You know, probably no one has ever asked them to explain more about what they're thinking. And some of them will struggle because, you know, it's like Henry Ford said about thinking. It's the most difficult thing in the world to do. That's why most people don't do it. 
and, and that may be operative there. Be careful of embarrassing them. You don't want to do that. But when you find someone who disagrees with you, just simply say, well, tell me more about that and listen. And, and then you can follow it up with the question like, now, do you know why I believe different and I believe? Has anyone ever explained that? Uh, th these are some really polite, very kind ways to surface the good news of Jesus Christ in context where there's not a sin celebration. If there's a sin celebration, you need to wait for the celebration to die down. Most of the time, that's not going to be the case. And you will have the opportunity. See, your silence says this is trivial. When you speak, you're saying this is really important to me. Jesus is very important to me. And by the way, while I've got your attention, can I tell you how important he is to me? I did not grow up with the Bible or prayer. I didn't grow up with Christmas being about Jesus' birth or Easter being about Jesus' resurrection. That was completely, thoroughly absent from my upbringing. But I always had an interest in these things. And some middle school boys got a hold of me one day and got me into Lamore First Southern Baptist Church. And Barbara Krause, despite her atheist husband's persecution and anger every Sunday morning at her, would weep as she told us of Jesus and his love. I want to tell you something. She kept teaching, despite his protest, his intense, nearly violent protest, and I took her seriously. That meant a lot for that lady to show up. And then Jerry Knudsen would teach our ninth grade Sunday school class, and he would urge us to trust the, trust the Lord. Well, eventually God got a hold of my heart, and I found myself in my bedroom one night feeling like I had failed, and I was so disappointed. And I realized the reason I was disappointed with my life is that Jesus was not Lord. And I knew better because Miss Barbara and Jerry told me so. And our new pastor had preached that. And so I got on my knees beside my bed and I said, God, I am sorry for what I've done. I, I've lived for myself. I, I trust what Jesus did at the cross. I believe he's alive. And I want you to come into my heart and my life and forgive me, and God, I give my life to you, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And I just relinquished everything, my guilt and my life. At that point, I didn't want either one. Someone else needed them, or could handle them better than I could. And so I called on him. I, I didn't know then, but there's a promise in the scripture where God says six times in the Bible, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he changed me then. And I don't remember if it was that night or the, ne the night after, but I began to read the Bible and I, I got direction for solving a lot of the problems I was facing. And, and then I started praying and I felt close to God. And, and then God began to guide me with what to do with my life about school and about what I was to spend my life doing and eventually who to marry and how to raise children and how to make decisions with the role I'm in now. Folks, he walks with me and he talks with me. I don't hear him audibly. It's much louder than that. I hear him in a much more reliable way through the spirit, through the heart, within the boundaries of the word of God. You want to know how important Jesus is to me? Probably just as important to you, and that is, I can't wait to walk the next mile with him. That's what I want. That's how important Jesus is. And so for that reason, in the midst of stranger dangers than I've ever seen before, we're going to stand on God's word.
because he is fully trustworthy. And he invites you to come to him today too. I don't know how you've embarrassed yourself. I don't know what kind of load of guilt you're carrying with you. I don't know what kind of skeletons are in the closet that howl at you and open the door at the most inappropriate times. But I want to tell you, God loves you. And right where you're sitting, Jesus Christ will come into your life and cancel your guilt before God. He'll do it. Some of you have already done that. You need to follow Christ in baptism or you need to become part of a church. This is where we stand. We're not budging from this text or any of the others. You become part of this church, you come. Maybe God's calling you to preach this word just like he did me. We want to encourage you to come. But I want to ask you to stand quickly. We're going to pray and we're going to respond to God as he leads us.